everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History, and every week we pick a new history book, and we interview its author. And this week, I'm really pleased to say we have Joyce Salisbury on the show, and we're going to be talking about her book, Rome's Christian Empress, Gala Placidia Rules at the Twilight of the Empire. We've had Joyce on the show before, and she was so terrific that I, I thought I had to have her on again. So welcome, Joyce. Thanks, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview in our customary way and just say a few words about yourself? Well, I'm a retired professor, well, professor emerita of medieval history from the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. And since I've been retired, I've been able to indulge my passions of writing books, doing some research, and lecturing as I travel around the world. So, so far, so good. Wow, what a life you have. I'm jealous. I really am. As I say, so far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds pretty terrific. I got to say, that sounds pretty great. Um, That's kind of why everybody goes to graduate school and gets a PhD, to end up like that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, uh, tell us why you wrote this book. Well, what I've done in the past is, as we've talked about in our previous, is that I I do long-duree history. So, what I've done in the past is try to think about what do people think about animals over a thousand years? And what did people think about sex over a thousand years? So this time, I thought it would be interesting to collapse the time and go for one person's life, a biography, Gala Placidia, but expand the topics covered to see how things weave together. So in other words, by collapse shortening the time, I can increase the number of topics I cover. And that was interesting to me and fun. Mm-hmm. And how, how does uh, Gala Placidia fit into this research program? She's an, a very interesting topic um, because she was incredibly important. I mean, she, she ruled, virtually ruled Rome as an empress for 10 years on her own and influenced it 10 years more. And she had a very exciting life. It's, you know, stuff of Hollywood, which I'll tell you in a, about in a minute. But not only was her influence important, but the time she lived was important. Rome was collapsing as barbarians were invading the states. The Christian church was being established as they were trying to decide what to believe around how to believe properly in Christ. So all of these things were happening at the same time, and she was at the center of it. Mm-hmm. So it made it fun to do the research, but I have to admit it was also pretty complicated. And, and, you know, I should say, uh, in a moment of confession, I had never heard of Gala Placidia. You know, and I read Gibbon in the whole nine yards as an undergraduate, although that was 150 years ago. Um, I, I find it kind of shocking. I did not know Rome had any female empresses. I know. <laughs> you know, much less one that's influential. I mean, Gibbon just sort of gives her a throwaway, oh, well, you know. And she gets these vague accusations. Well, if she hadn't been such a bad mother and raised her son to be so um, useless, then Rome wouldn't have fallen. Well, no, but... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a bit much. Um, Right. So, uh, could you begin by setting the stage for us? Most people know that the Roman Empire fell, quote-unquote, in the um, 5th century. I don't know what fall means. I've been taught to think that it didn't fall, but... Uh, could you tell us about the Roman Empire, uh, its environs, its trajectories, and uh, its disposition at this time? Okay. So, Galapagos was born around 388. We can't decide whether it was 388 or 389. And at that moment, the Roman Empire was divided into two administrative portions. The east, centered in Constantinople, the new great city of Constantinople, founded about a you know, 315 generation before, and the West, the capital in Milan. And so these two portions of the administrative empire were holding the line against incoming barbarians, as they called them. I'm not sure they were any more barbaric than anyone else. But <laughs> they were, you know, Goths sweeping in across the Danube, Huns pushing on them, and um, warriors trying to hold the line and hold the empire together. 
while you picture this influx, by the way, which forms the basis of much of this story, North Africa falls to the Vandals, you know, Spain falls away to the Visigoths, the Angles take Britain. Can I make a little comment on modern-day history? Mm-hmm. Do you know, there are some people who suggest that the influx of refugees into Europe today parallels the same kind of movement of peoples that swept away the culture of the Roman Empire. Not that I'm advocating any sort of European cultural atrophy here, but consider there were 200, there are about 200,000 refugees coming into Greece from North Africa. North Africa in the 5th century was taken by 80,000 vandals. Mm. So you can see there's kind of a movement of peoples. And what's interesting to me is that this movement of peoples, culture shifts and culture changes and, and how people talk and what they use and how they believe shifts. And that's part of the story of Galapagosidia, because as we go through her life, you're going to see she gets very cozy with barbarians. She even marries her kidnapper. Mm-hmm. And as she does, then the barbarians become more part and more central to Rome. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So it's this blending of people and a movement of people that's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this uh, is Rome in the 4th century, okay? And then her father... Theodosius the Great, he was a great warrior, and he wanted to establish this dynasty for himself, the Theodosian dynasty. And he did it by getting God on his side, as I put it. And that's the other theme that runs through this whole book. Because Theodosius declared that Christianity was the religion of the empire. If you're Roman, you're Christian. It's not tolerating Christians. It's saying, you are Christian. So with the stroke of his pen, or his scribe's pen, the Roman Catholic Church was born. And then he died, ten years later. So it was left to his heirs, including Gala Placidia and her useless brothers, uh, to implement this Roman Christian empire. That's the other reason why she's so important during this time. Does that set the stage enough? It does. The only thing I would add is, uh, or I would ask you to add, is a few words about the fact that there were two capitals. At least I think there were two capitals. Yes, there were. Okay. So it's an administrative problem. You know you have um, barbarians coming in from both sides, and you've got, it's difficult to administer such a large space. You know, I mean, we're so used to instantaneous information. But, for example, if you know that it took a month, for information to get, important information, to get from Italy over to, um, with information going, taking so long to travel from one side of the empire to the other, it made sense for administrative purposes to have two co-emperors on each side. So the one in Constantinople would handle the administrative and, more importantly, the defense of the East, and the one in Milan would handle the administration and defense in the West. Theodosius, Theodosius the Great, had planned to unite these two. He had two sons, and I should say two fairly useless sons, Arcadius, whom he made the emperor in the East, and Honorius, whom he made the emperor in the West. Galapagosidia, the sister, lived in Rome, Milan, and then Rome in the West. So her story is primarily in the West. Now, the, her brother, Honorius, was raised in a palace with full of eunuchs catering to his every whim. And, in fact, he was so catered, for some reason, we don't know, he never consummated a marriage between his two various wives. I guess the secrets stay within that palace and his eunuchs. But, so therefore, if the blood of Theodosius was going to rule in the West, it had to come through Galapagosidia. Mm-hmm. So she becomes very important as the blood of Theodosius runs through her veins. And since Theodosius and the Theodosian emperors of uh, Theodosian dynasty said, well, really, God is on the side of the house of Theodosius. So if you want God on your side, you better have an heir of this family. So, so there you have the setup of the 
Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I know you just prompted me to ask a couple of additional background questions. And, and one is that I'm sure came to the attention of our listeners. Uh, Milan is not Rome. And it's oh, the head yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rome got to be so messy with internal politics, and they had the Senate and all those senators, and the emperors decided it was a little bit easier to move up to Milan, it was sort of less messy and closer to the passes in the north through which barbarian tribes might run. And by the way, I should say that Honorius, once he, while he was in Milan, at some point the barbarians entered the gate and he moved the court to Ravenna. Mm-hmm. So our story really about Ravenna with those glorious mosaics. Mm-hmm. Your listeners really should go there. It's a beautiful place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the other question was, uh, I think it has to do with the name Theodosius. That's a Greek name, isn't it? Yes. These people were very but, heavily Hellenized. I guess that's what I'm getting at. What, what language did they speak? What language did they read in? You know, that kind of thing. Yes, they were very Hellenized. They were, but they read both Greek and Latin. Theodosius' family was from Spain, actually. And, um, I know. <laughs> of course he was. Exactly. Of course he was, right? Yeah. And so, um, Alicidia and her brothers read both Greek and Latin. And in fact, when she built a church, St. John the Baptist in Ravenna, she built it to include a library, and she had two wings off the church, and each wing, one side was for the Greek text, and one side was for the Latin text. So they were very well educated and very well spoken. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that sets the scene. So uh, let's actually start the narrative itself. Um, and she uh, is born, you say, in, I guess it's, uh, when did you say? In the, in the east, in 388. In 388, She's right. born, mm-hmm. yeah, as she's heading toward her, her mother, which is Theodosius, the second wife, is heading toward Constantinople stops in Thessalonica, has his baby, and then they head over to Constantinople to be admitted into the, into the palace. And right from the get-go, her half-brother, Arcadius, won't let her in. He's young. He's seven, six, seven. He's young, and he refuses her entrance into the palace. And what we see that sets up here, one of the things, one of the features of her life, is kind of a sibling rivalry that extends on to the next generation. Brothers and sisters don't get along. And in the not getting along, here they um, shape larger politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to you know, get to the slight more interesting. So she um, exiles a bit, but she gets she was raised. Theodosius brings her back to Milan with her brother Honorius, the younger next brother. And so Honorius, is in Milan, and then Theodosius dies. So then she is raised with the brothers under the tutelage of Stilicho. So for those of you who know the ancient history, you have heard of him. He's the, the strong right arm of Honorius who's fighting and keeping away the barbarians at the gates. But let's move to 410, all right? So she's almost 20, 408. Alaric the Goth sweeps in across the passes from the Baltics, and he um, surrounds Rome. People are starving inside of the city of Rome. Honorius is in Ravenna, and Alaric virtually controls the the city of uh, uh, the city of Rome for sure. In 410, the unthinkable happens. Alaric that's the city of Rome. This was an incredible, can you even imagine, Rome, the eternal city, sacked by these Goths. As they sacked the city, they took treasures, they took all kinds of money. And by the way, when I, when I, write, when I wrote this chapter, one of the things that I had to struggle with was how did all these people move around? Um, I mean, I calculated how many wagons they would take, maybe 600 wagons pulled by 1,200 oxen as they're surrounding the city and trying to sack the city. Can you imagine 180,000 people trying to live off the land? Um, It was chaos, and it was awful. 
And when they sacked the city, they took the gold and they took Dalla Presidia hostage. Mm-hmm. This is a critical turning point, actually, in the history of the West, because they took her hostage and um, started traveling with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine? I told you there's a sibling rivalry here. So I'm picturing, you know, a phone call to her brother. It's like, oh, okay, we got your sister, you know, and cash. <laughs> and he says, hey, I never liked her anyway. You keep her. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he said, I don't care. Keep her. She traveled with these dots from 410 for over two years traveling around Italy. What does that even look like, you know? I mean, Rome goes on and you have these 120,000 people traveling around keeping her hostage. It's crazy. And there's a romantic side of the story, but you can hardly, you couldn't write this stuff into its fiction. Because as she's traveling around, she gets to know her captive, Athol, the lovely, handsome Goth. And by the way, the Goth um, smoked marijuana. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> of course they did, you know. For 4,000 years, they brought it in. So I'm picturing them sitting around the fire. You know, smoking marijuana, having the munchies, and chatting. Mm-hmm. All right, got yeah. that? Got it. So she and Ethel fall in love. And according to the text, she's describing this wonderful land where her family comes from, Spain, where the horses have grazing, where there's mines and there's hills, where there's beautiful um, pastures and a... Um, Lovely seaside. I do like the beaches in Spain, too. I share her opinion on that. So they decide to travel across the Alps with all of these 600 kinds of wagons as they go. And in 414, in Norban, in southern France, they get married. Do you believe that? But she married her kidnapper. Mm -hmm. I'm picturing Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, aren't you? Right. So a couple of questions about that, if I can. One is that, so the sources tell us that they were in love. Is that right? Not necessarily. The sources tell us that he respected her beauty and her brains and her acumen, and he listened to her. Mm -hmm. Is that love? I don't know. I'm married. I have no idea. Um, So then the second question. Yeah. If she says that he was handsome and he was smart and he listened to her, is that love? I don't know. But there you have it. Yeah, I don't know either. So the second question is, uh, how does a Christian marry a barbarian? Right? That's interesting, too. Because he was Christian, although the story gets a little complicated. He was Christian, though he was Aryan. That means he's a heretic. Mm -hmm. So we have an Orthodox Christian and we have a heretic. And they decide to get married. Is there an issue about that? No, because marriage wasn't a sacrament yet. Oh. Marriage was political alignment hmm. between two people. Hmm. And if I can jump ahead in the story a bit for um, Placidia's daughter, Honoria, she had a sibling rivalry with her brother. And this is how I picture the conversation, very loosely translated. Oh, mom had a barbarian. Maybe I'll get one, too. (laughs) (laughs) And she sent a ring and proposed marriage to Attila the Hun. That's why he came in, roaring in. Now, Attila the Hun was a polygamous pagan. He wasn't Mm -hmm. even a Christian heretic, Mm -hmm. and she didn't care. Mm -hmm. Marriage was about politics, about alignment, about what will work for you. And if it's a heretical barbarian... Or a polygamous pagan, that's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. I think that maybe some of our listeners won't be entirely clear on what you meant by your statement that marriage wasn't a sacrament yet. I mean, I'm recalling what the old or the New Testament says about marriage, and as far as I know, it only says one thing, and that is that you shouldn't get divorced. <laughs> I guess that implies marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> but well, in in fact, um, I do include this issue of marriage in my, in my text. I try to include everything. Uh, Augustine is writing at the same time, all right? And as early as 401, he wrote a treatise called The Good of Marriage. And he says marriage is about friendship. Marriage 
um, shouldn't be divorced, but marriage is a secular matter. Um, he just says couples shouldn't remarry if they separate for whatever reason, including adultery. Mm-hmm. But the issue of marriage being presided over by a church sacrament, that's centuries, centuries in the future. Hmm. That's fascinating. They're still talking about it. That's fascinating and, shall I say, relevant to yeah. us today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the things that was really interesting to write this period, because this is the time they're working all this out. They're starting to think about whether, you know, whether when you should um, baptize children, infant or adult, whether marriage is something that should be involved, whether Christian women should be have sex at all, whether, I mean, all of these, whether we should celebrate um, Christmas. And by the way, Augustine said no. Don't celebrate Christmas. That's just some baby, yeah, right? Right, right. So all of these things are being worked out mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, I think we should pay attention to that. Um, so she becomes a, a queen then when she gets married to. Yes, she becomes queen of the Visigoths, and they're off to Spain. Oh, and it's so glorious. They go settle in Barcelona, which I think is a really good choice. I love Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And if any of your listeners are going to Barcelona, there's a wonderful uh, museum excavation under the old part of the city where you could actually walk on the streets where Placidia walked. You can wow. see the old layout. I know. That's so fun. That is cool. And then, yes, so she settled in Barcelona, and everything looked wonderful. She was pregnant. They had this baby she was so, so thrilled about. She named him Theodosius. Obviously, her plan was to be, make him the emperor of Rome. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the sources, one of the things that um, Athol purportedly claims is that his idea was to conquer Rome and turn it into Gothia and forget Rome. Mm-hmm. But that Placidia persuaded him that, in fact, the thing to do was to become Roman and become the emperor of Rome. When they got married, they did it with Roman outfits, not Gothic ones. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how she begins to shift the whole idea of the Visigoths and the whole idea of how you incorporate all of these barbarian tribes into a whole new empire, one that encompasses both Rome and Gothia. Mm-hmm. And this little boy, Theodosius, he was, he was the dream, he was the imagination that was going to accomplish that. It was a great idea, but of course, sadly, great ideas don't always come to the fore. Yeah, in so the hot summer. Go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I said there are other people with other plans, so that sets you up nicely. Yes, yeah. <laughs> not to mention God, I suppose. Yeah. In the hot summer, in Barcelona, in the heat when the food isn't refrigerated, so many children die of intestinal diseases, and so does little. Theodosius. He dies and, um, of course, her parents are crushed. He's buried in a little silver coffin outside the walls of Barcelona. And by the way, she retrieved that little silver coffin to bring it back to Rome to be buried with her. She never forgets that first beloved son. Mm-hmm. And then, as if things weren't bad enough, then um, in the violence of the Visigoths, Atheric gets killed too. Mm-hmm. She gets shipped back to her brother in Ravenna, and her time as the Queen of the Viscoff is over, and she starts a new section of her life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So she, she ends up in, uh, after the death of her son and then her husband, she ends up in Ravenna with Honorus and Arcadius, is that right? Or? Arcadius lives in um, Constantinople. So oh, she's there okay. with Honorus. Honorus, yes. Yeah, and right. she says to Honorus, I don't want to get married. And he says, you're going to marry this general of mine because I need him. He's the fighter. And he's, and according to her and the witnesses, he's kind of ugly and, and kind of grumpy. And he's only fun when he's drinking with his buddies. And she says, I don't want to marry him. And her brother says, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And he sticks her hand in Constantius's hand, and they're married. Mm-hmm. And she's amazing in my mind. For someone who makes a virtue out of every necessity, she got kidnapped by a barbarian, married him. She gets stuck with a husband she doesn't want, 
and she quickly produces two children. First, a daughter, Honoria, the one unhappily later who's going to propose marriage to Attila the Hun. That does not go well, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to imagine proposing marriage to Attila the Hun could go well. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... (laughs) We know that wasn't a love match. (laughs) And then the, the son... Finally, and she gives him another name, Valentinian, and he will become the next emperor mm-hmm. um, of the western part of the empire. Mm-hmm. Her husband then dies, and she becomes the um, regent for her son until he grows. Mm-hmm. Now, Washington, Rosanna, again, I sort of want to urge people to go to visit. There's a beautiful um, what's called the mausoleum there of Gala Placidia. It's not her mausoleum. She's buried in Rome. And nor was it originally a mausoleum. It was originally part of a great church that she had designed. She was a great church. I'm going to say builder, but I, I think we should say purchaser, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she, she funds them and hires all artists. And in this mausoleum of Gala Placidia is, would have been one wing of her great church. And you can see the spectacular mosaics that are, that are there. And the star at the top of this little chapel has stars, and reportedly Cole Porter wrote his song, um, Stars, Stars, Moon and Stars, based on this chapel of Galapagos. See, it's, everything links together in some giant web of history, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this chapel itself, her influence on how she contracts the... Um, mosaicists and designs the artwork and decides what she likes has a huge influence, long-standing influence on um, the West. If I can jump forward in the story a little bit um, to continue that theme, Um, there's a church in Rome, um, Maria Maggiore. It's the the first church in the West that's dedicated to the Virgin Mary, Hmm. and that was built in 431. Before that, nobody was praying to the Virgin Mary. Everybody was praying to a saint and some other, uh, or the apostle or martyrs. But this was the first church dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And it was dedicated to the Virgin Mary because of a conflict about the role of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. And this conflict led to a conference in the East that said, oh, yes, indeed, Mary is the mother of God in spite of what everybody says. And so the, the elevation of the Virgin Mary was suddenly increased under the reign of actually two empresses, this one in the West and one in the East. And so then when they built this church, Maria Maggiore, you can still go in there today and see um, one of the mosaics that becomes the prototype of how the Virgin Mary will be portrayed in art in the West ever since. And that image looks like Galapagosidia. Mm-hmm. So she becomes the visual prototype of the Virgin Mary in the West. Hmm. I didn't like nice, that. huh? Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's very okay. interesting. So uh, is she, at this stage in her career, if we can call it that, is she, mm, she's not empress yet, is she? No, she's not. Just actually her brother makes her an empress, declares her empress, and um, but the eastern part of the reign doesn't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And then her brother dies. Her brother dies, and she has to flee to leave town. So it's Honorius now, dies. Honorius dies, okay. yeah, and she's got to, to leave town because nobody wants her there. So oh. she grabs her two children, and where is she going to go? Again, she's a sort of enterprising person. Instead of just giving up and saying, okay, I'll let somebody else be emperor, she gathers up her two children and flees to Constantinople. She grabs a ship out of south of Ravenna, and off she goes to the court of her nephew, Theodosius II. Mm-hmm. All right, so he's out there in Constantinople, and Theodosius II is kind of a monk sort, and he essentially does whatever his sister, the empress, wants. So the empresses, Galapidia, 
existential period. I'm sorry, there are a lot of players in this, yeah. <laughs> in, this in this story. They get together and they decide ultimately that yes, she should be empress, and will let Valentini and her son marry Theodosius's daughter when they all grow up. Theodosius, they were both children, and that will unite the empire again. So she manages to do this wonderful political sense of combining everything there in the East. And so she's got the title of Empress. Her son has the title of Emperor. And the armies of Theodosius take her back. She conquers in Ravenna. And she's Empress of the Romans in Ravenna, ruling from on her own from 424 to 437. So I, I have so to ask... I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. But let me ask this question about the title Empress. Uh, as I said... Earlier, I didn't know there were any um, Roman empresses. And what I had always assumed was that there was a law that said only a male could become uh, the ruler of the empire. Um, what was the legal disposition of her position? And, and what was the thinking about females on holding this particular office? That's a great question. And one I asked myself when I started this. So the title Augusta, it means, you know, Caesar Augustus uh, means emperor. Okay, emperor and empress. Now, before Galapagosidia and the Theodic family of Theodosius, a couple of women were given that title. It was an honorary title, like Helena, the mother of Constantine, was called empress. So there were a couple that bought the title, though they didn't rule. And to me, one of the things that signaled the fact that it's a different things happening with this Theodosian Empire are the coins. Coins are wonderful propaganda. By the way, as we know, which is why we want to put a woman on the $10 bill, right? right. It's yeah. very firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so coins are great propaganda tools. And when Theodosius the Great said, God is working through my family, when he named his first wife Empress, he struck a coin. Now, previously, coins with empresses would show them as goddesses or something kind of more ephemeral. He had this coin struck. He was draped in a military robe, just like the male emperors. So he was shown fully empress. And Gallup City and all his family, when they struck their own coins, they were, they were dressed as emperors, and they added something new. They added a hand of God pointing down to them. So they were fully empresses ruling by the hand of God. Mm -hmm. See, Christianity added this new twist to it that's saying that God rules through the house of Theodosius. Mm -hmm. So you see, there is something new here with this empress business that we can see in the coins. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Yes, yeah. so she is actually empress, and her um, niece over in the east was actually empress. And her, this is what causes her daughter some problems. She gives her daughter the title of empress as well. And her daughter is thinking, well, gee, if I'm the empress, why don't I have some place to empress on, you know? Why am I hanging up for the palace? <laughs> Thus she gets Attila. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And by the way, yeah. as the empire starts falling away after Galapagosidia dies, her granddaughter gets all mad. And again, she's looking for a barbarian. And she, so she calls the vandal out of North Africa and says, So, come rescue me. He does in 450 and sacks Rome so badly that we get the term vandalism. I was going to say, it seems to me there are lots of tensions here, though, that might give rise to some sort of polemic. I don't know. I don't know the sources very well. But A, you have, for the first time in Roman history, a, a woman on the throne, however that throne is called. Um, and B, you have what is essentially a, a hereditary dynasty. I don't know if there are any other kinds, but you have a dynasty. You have a group of people that is passing the um, crown, so to say, uh, through their family. And that's not... Uh, kosher to uh, badly mix a cultural metaphor uh, in Roman tradition, is it? 
you're exactly right. It was so not Roman. And as bad as it was, it's the sense of dynasty. Theodosius was absolutely certain that he was creating a dynasty. When his younger son, Honorius, was only two years old, um, Theodosius had him claimed consul of Rome. If you know your Roman history, yeah. I mean, the consuls are like, <laughs> they're important people. They lead armies and they govern. They're serious. And here's this three-year-old. And the sources say they wrapped him in the consular robe he could hardly wear that he toddles up. <laughs> and the, the poet who celebrated this wonderful event, Claudian, said, oh, yes. And during his consular year, he brought so much luck that everything went well. Yeah, really. I mean, how non-Roman is that? You can see this, this huge shift. It's a cultural shift. And it's at this moment, I think, that the cultural shift stops things being Roman and starts moving them to be medieval. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I think Rome fell the moment you have a two-year-old consul. It just didn't know it yet. <laughs> Yeah, no, I see what you mean, and it is a huge cultural shift, of course, at the time. And, th- and that's an interesting question, and you know, that th- probably merits a certain amount of thought. So when mm, Rome was uh, first uh, besieged and sacked, uh, you know, the question is, did people perceive, as we do, that it was a monumental event? And, you know, accordingly, when a woman becomes uh, empress, did people conceive of that as a monumental event? And then, of course, the third question is, when... Uh, this empress uh, ends up being part of a dynasty. Did people perceive that as a monumental event? Um, can you, it, were there people writing about these things at the time saying, you know, uh, it's the end of the empire or this is the worst thing that could possibly happen? No, on the contrary, what you see, once you get God in the mix, people who are writing about it, many of them are, well, there are traditional pagans who are saying, horrible, 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 you know, and there are, there are Christian writers who would say, oh, isn't this wonderful? This is just God's plan. This is just, <laughs> this is just great. <laughs> and can I sort of side into theology for a minute here? Oh, because yeah. Much, yeah, all right. Because Watson, you introduced the question. Okay, she's kidnapped, all right, 410, Rome falls, all right, and people are rushing down to North Africa, escaping Italy, because the barbarians everywhere, and as they come into North Africa, they're saying, oh, the eternal city has fallen, you know, that's because these stupid Christians started praying to God in there, that's why Jupiter and everybody let the eternal city fall, and the great theologian, Augustine, was there, and he had to answer these critics. And his first, um, his first sermon on the fall of Rome, I have to say it's funny. Okay, you're not allowed to laugh at sermons. Because he says, oh, you know, Rome didn't fall. It's still there. Just some people got hurt. Quit your whining. You know, Mm -hmm. God has destroyed other people. Quit your whining. Well, needless to say, the quit your whining argument is not very successful. (laughs) So then, (laughs) Augustine wrote his massive work, The City of God. Right? And that this, this work that has transformed the way we look at religion and everything was stimulated by the fact that the Goths sacked the city and kidnapped Placidia. Mm-hmm. And in the city of God, he articulated a new version, vision of what religion looks like. Because before, all the years before, from the time of the Sumerians, God was guarding one space or another, you know? God was about the spaces. But he said, no, the city of God is just somewhere else. It's a platonic city. It's mixed in with this earthly city, like a jewel in a dung heap. The city of God didn't fall. It's still there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see? Which is what more satisfying, but also shapes Christianity in a particular way. Yeah, I don't think that can be overemphasized. I mean, we still... Yeah. I mean, the legacy of this is everywhere in Christian theology. Uh, the sort of imminent church. And, you know, I sometimes teach Western Civ and we read it. So it's... Uh, I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely still there. And, you know, I think when people think about the Christian church, you know, they have a tendency to say, you know, wherever there are two of us. Um, 
but that's not, I think, the way the Christian church was thought of before this moment. Um, no. It was a different sort of thing And entirely. if I can continue a little bit with Augustine, because at the same time, you know, there's warfare all over, and people are dying. And, and Augustine articulates the view of what is a just war. If you want to know what's something that's topical today, mm-hmm. right? How do you know what a just war is if it's not God on the side of one city or another? Mm-hmm. And he says... So he comes up with a theory of just war that's, frankly, horrible. It says, well, if it's run by a Christian emperor, and if it intends to the benefit of everybody, and he means like the spiritual benefit, not like, you know, land or anything. Sure. You know, then it's a just war. Well, that opens the way for any war to be a just war. Yeah. And worse yet, it suggests that war is just. Right. It wasn't, a, it wasn't Augustine's best moment, frankly. Yeah. He should have stopped God, I think. Yeah. I think that you're pointing out, and it's a great service, that Christianity is a evolving thing. And what we think of Christianity today is not what Christianity was. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you I'm old yeah. enough. It wasn't even Christianity 30 years ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So, yeah, a friend of mine calls it the doctrine of continuing revelation. You know, it's a, there's a, I like that. There's always more to be seen. So um, at that time, there was a lot to be seen. So it's very interesting. There was a lot, particularly because they were shaping it. You know, it was all new. You know, yeah. how does, where does God live? What does God think? What yeah. does he want? Yeah. You know, it's all new. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So, so she's empress. How does she rule? She spends a lot of time actually working on laws, which is interesting. I was able to read um, many of the laws that are issued in the name of her son when he's two and three, and obviously there it's her, you know, doing those laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting to see what the, what kind of legislation she was working on. And she was one of the things that I have argued, as I, as I see women ruling, is that they tend to be conservative. In other words, sufficiently revolutionary that they're in charge. They don't want to rock the boat any more than that. Mm-hmm. Right? So she is very conservative in terms of telling the Senate they have all sorts of power. She, she passes a law saying that senators can really do anything they want with their slaves. And all, and, and she has kind of a theoretical approach to the laws that's very important. So she spends a lot of time doing that. And, um, by the way, her nephew in Constantinople at the same time decided to issue what's called the Theodosian Code, which um, tries to assemble all the previous Roman laws in a way that makes them make sense, you know, to, so they, they can become precedent for the first, for the future. Mm-hmm. And she was instrumental in that as well. And then, as she's ruling, of course, becomes the problem of who ruling is one thing, but she needs generals to run the army. And she tries a very nice kind of um, balance of power division. She has one general for Gorgias, another one for North Africa, and she kind of juggles all these people. Because remember, the um, barbarians are still at the gates, and it's during her rule that North Africa falls to the Vandals, mm-hmm. a horrible, horrible um, disaster for Rome. Mm-hmm. And um, her solution was to negotiate a marriage between her granddaughter and the young Vandal um, heir to try to combine the families again. You see, she didn't, they didn't know that Rome was falling, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. It was just different people coming and going and doing things, and, and things were shifting, so nobody noticed exactly how big it was. Um, give you an idea, one of the things that I try to weave in is daily life um, throughout this, because to me, it, it matters. Now, for example, her brother, Honorius, passed a law. Nobody's allowed to wear trousers. No blue jeans allowed. <laughs> because that's what barbarians wore. And when the Vandals took over in North Africa, they passed a law that said you could only have a job 
if you wore trousers. Right. You see, it's called <laughs> cultural identity, you know, mm-hmm. shifts things around. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like to weave our daily life throughout this. By the way, the barbarians brought in soap. I know you'll appreciate that. Yeah, I do appreciate soap. I really do. Um, I do too. I, I, I use it once a month, whether I need it or not. <laughs> right? Where if the barbarians hadn't come in with soap, we would just be rubbing ourselves with oil and scraping the dirt off. With that, that sounds garbage. horrible, to be honest with you. That sounds yeah. horrible. So she, she's a successful empress, and her greatest success, I think, is actually passing her title on to her son, right? Yeah. Right. That, yeah. That's quite something. And she does that. And she does it. She hands it over. And she actually served as kind of his guidance for the next, until she died in 450. So for over 10 years, while he's ruling, he, she, passed, she, she guides him in many ways, and the disasters don't happen until after she dies. Mm-hmm. Her last days, I think, are sort of poignant. I mean, I think, anyway. What she did, she came to Rome, and she sent people to go and dig up that first child. Um, little Theodosius, who was buried outside Barcelona. And she brought him, and in a big fancy funeral, buried him in the chapel where the Theodosian family would live. Her son refused to show up at that event. I'm sure he wasn't happy. Do people get jealous in retrospect? Mm. I don't know. But in any case, but apparently she, she was buried in that same sarcophagus with that first little baby, and she died peacefully and happily. Um, I think, you know, you can die, her son's in place, her daughter's not dead yet, you know, and things are happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she dies, and then things go rapidly to hell after that. Her son tries to kill the um, general, or does kill Etius, gets killed on his own, gets killed himself. The empire... She died in 450, and the fall of the Roman Empire is essentially in the West, the date 476. 476. All that's left was the shouting as competing emperors went their own way. Mm-hmm. Her granddaughters end up in Constantinople, leaving um, a son, the king of the Vandals. And they end up in Constantinople. And supposedly, some people have traced her um, bloodline down through some of the um, Eastern nobility. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's a happy ending too, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rome is the eternal city, right? And um, the eternal question is, and one I think that would be good to end the interview on, is why did the Roman Empire fall? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure every historian of Rome hates this question, but it seems to me you're uniquely positioned to answer the question in kind of proximate sense. In other words, I'm not talking about, well, you know, a huge list of uh, things that led to the decline of the empire. I'm talking about how, how what went wrong after Placidia's death? I would say, and, and I do, I add a little, you know, addendum here for yeah. Rome fall. Yeah, I would say that Rome, A, didn't fall, it was pushed, you know? I mean, <laughs> just overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. by the barbarians. You know, they bounced off that great wall in Constantinople, came west, and it was the Germanic tribes that overwhelmed. But I would also say, and, and at the risk of saying that Gibbon is correct, I would also say that Rome fell with this whole idea that you rule because the blood of Theodosius ran through your veins. You know, it wasn't the strong arm of the empire, emperor, that kept Rome safe with the blood of Theodosius. Bad idea, you know? His sons were useless. Arcadius in the East, the text described him as being like a jellyfish with as much energy as a jellyfish. Mm -hmm. You know? And so if if you get to rule, they were lucky that Placidia was as competent as she was, which is why Rome didn't fall 20 years earlier. Mm -hmm. But, yes... So then in the proximate sense, Rome fell for the reason that many, many dynasties follow, and that is the dynasts aren't really up to the task. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, you know, it's a, it's a big way, you know, that kind of 
uh, political system, you know, uh, hereditary monarchy, to put it generically, is a big risk. You know, because you you don't know, you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, when it works, it works great, but there's a pretty random process that's just thrown in there. You're going to roll the dice every time, and you don't know what you're going to get. Um, seems nice. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting story between nature and nurture. You know, the dynast says, yeah, I mean, if, if it's my son, he's got to be good. Right. But, and then if you leave him raised by pampered eunuchs, right. he doesn't turn out so good. Right. Wow. Well, yeah, that's something. So let me ask a final question, or actually it's not a final question because I'm going to ask a question after this. Uh, what's Placidia's mm, legacy today? Do not hold with that. There are just so many. I mean, I think it's in the artwork that shapes how people view Christianity and how they view an imperial Christianity. And I think it's in some of the theology that was articulated. Mm-hmm. Um, Christmas and the Virgin Mary. And I think it's in the law that says the emperor is not above the law. That She articulated that really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, right? well, that's, because, very good. that's a very good answer. You know, because I think that in some cases, uh, uh, well, I don't know, but uh, emperors have no legacy at all. <laughs> I mean, hey, it could be worse, right? Yeah, right. And, and, and she definitely does have a legacy, and I think she deserves to be better known than she is. So th- this is the final question, Joyce, and it is uh, our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Uh, okay. Well, I have two projects I'm working on now. Um, I'm working with the great forces to think about putting together a, a course, a recorded course. That's one thing. But I have a new book in my head, too, that's dying to be born, because I'm interested in thinking about space, about how people relate to space. And so I'm thinking of a book on Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Okay, here you go. The four women who founded Christian Jerusalem. Hmm. The women who traveled there and put money in it. Hmm. And I'm picturing the map of Jerusalem shaped as Helena, Melania, Egeria, and others shape it. Do you like that? I like it. I like it. That, that, that <laughs> definitely has wings. I think that could work. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, when you get done Send with it that, to you book, when it's out. oh, that would, yeah, and we'll have you on again because you're so terrific. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. We've been talking with Joyce Salisbury about her book, Rome's Christian Empress. I bet you didn't know that Rome had a Christian Empress. You should read the book. Gala Placidia Rules at the Twilight of the Empire. It's out now, and you can buy a copy of it. And I suggest that you do if you're interested in these matters. So, Joyce, let me say thank you to you. And thanks to you, Marshall, as always. Absolutely. And let me say thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. I guess you don't tune in anymore. Thank you very much for downloading or streaming or whatever it is that we do. All right. Bye-bye.